Let's just have a word of prayer together before we start. Heavenly Father, you've given us an opportunity in the middle of the week to gather together as part of a spiritual family that we might be instructed from the Word of God. This is the only book that comes from heaven as its source. These 66 books that comprise the Bible. And you commanded us to meditate on them. That we might learn to do all the words of this book. And we thank you that we have the enjoyment as a free country thus far. To be able to gather and have freedom of assembly. Freedom of speech. And to be able to learn and admonish one another in song, spiritual melodies, and in the instruction like this. Thank you for the last several weeks in this book and for studying this man, Nehemiah, and his leadership. And tonight as we finish it off, his strong leadership. Father, we pray for those who are suffering and in need, those who are uh, in the um, southeastern part of the United States, not only have they faced a major disaster, but it looks like they could be facing more along this hurricane's path. Protect them, Father. Encourage them. Send resources their way, human, monetary, food supplies, water. And Father, I just want to pray a special blessing upon those who have gathered here tonight. You know which ones need your encouragement, your touch, a healing touch from your hand, a special word that would uplift the spirit, maybe a needed exhortation or even a rebuke. We leave that in your hands, Lord. But I just pray that you would bind your people together And thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin in Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10 tonight, in just a moment. William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. When he started it and he formed leadership groups to take his vision and infuse it to men and women underneath him. On one occasion, he took a group of young men and he said, Young men... You must always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must tend it. You must kept it fed. You must remove its ashes. He was on to something, William Booth. It is the nature of fire to go out. And he touched on something we touched on a couple of weeks ago when we started chapter 13. And I gave you a term, spiritual entropy. That entropy isn't just a law in physics. It also happens to be a law in all of nature, in all realms, socially and spiritually. That just as entropy states, it is the nature of things to wind down and lose energy in a closed system, to go from order to chaos, so it is the nature of Things spiritual for the fire, the spiritual fire to go out and for energy to be lost over time. Nehemiah discovered that. Here's the scenario. 
Nehemiah had been governor in Jerusalem, the city he was dispatched from Persia to go and rebuild. For 12 years, he put his hand to that task and raised up an army of people who would defend the city after building the city. And then he left to go back to Persia because King Artaxerxes set a certain time for him to go there and then to come back. So he went back. For some reason, perhaps for the reasons listed in chapter 13, the chaos that has developed, he goes back to Jerusalem and finds something startling. That spiritual entropy has happened. Instead of that high level of worship and devotion and commitment to the Word of God and the worship of God, this group had become sort of blasé and compromising in spiritual things so soon after they had made a commitment. Let me just jog your memory a minute. You remember just a few chapters back, they were reading the Bible. They were reading a scroll. It was being read publicly. And when people heard that, it had been a long time since they heard something like that. They tore their clothes, put ashes on their head, and they repented, made a huge emotional display. We've sinned. We've got to get back to God. And they made what they called in chapter 9 and 10 a sure covenant. We're going to do this. We're going to keep these things that God wants us to keep because we know why we have strayed and we know why we have gone into captivity. Well, all of the things, or a lot of them, that they made a sure covenant promising not to do, they're now doing. And Nehemiah comes back and asserts his firm leadership once again into this system that has developed. The Bible calls you and I, though you may not like it, sheep. You got to know a little bit about sheep to be insulted by that one. Sheep are dumb. Oh, yeah, but they're cuddly. Yeah, they're cuddly, but they're dumb. And ask anybody who's kept sheep. I knew lots of guys in New Mexico who were sheep herders. And they said, listen, everything the Bible alludes about sheep is true. They are so prone to go astray. So when Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray, that guy knew his sheep. God calls us that. Now, I'm comforted by that. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. He sees himself as a sheep. I'm not insulted that God calls me a sheep. I'm thrilled to have such a great shepherd. That's all. That's the way I look at it. In 1758, Robert Robertson wrote a very famous hymn. We sing it from time to time. Come thou fount of every blessing. And there's a a verse where he says... uh, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, what's interesting about the author of that hymn is that he was right theologically and he experienced that personally. Years after he wrote that, he backslid. And he was riding in a carriage one day, sitting next to a young lady, reading a hymn book. She was. He wasn't. He had a growl on his face and... She, being a Christian, was so excited in reading this truth. And she opened up the conversation. She said, listen to this. And she started reading this hymn, and the author was sitting next to her. And he said, young woman, I wrote that. 
And now my heart today is convicted and pricked by the very words that I wrote because I am far from my Lord. So I'm setting that up because here there's three areas of compromise I want you to look at with me in Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 10. Three misplaced priorities. Number one, the secular has now become more important than the spiritual. We'll see that in verse 10 through 14. Number two, profit has become more important than purpose. And finally, liberty has become more important than legacy. Let's begin in verse 10 and we'll read down a few verses. I also realized that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. So I contended with the rulers. Just note that little word, contended. It's going to mean a lot to you as you get through the rest of this chapter. You'll see how contentious this leader can become. So I contended, I argued, I disputed, I had something against them. And he said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. Now you will remember that the Old Testament law stipulated that anybody who works in the temple, the tabernacle, was to be provided for. The entire tribe of Levi was to be provided for by the tithes and offerings of the rest of the tribes of Israel. Now when the temple was built, a special room was set aside to take grain and other offerings and store them in there to care for this tribe of Levites, the priesthood and all those who accompanied the workings of the temple. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, Shelemiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Padiah next to him was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful. And their task was to distribute to their brethren. Again, note the qualification. It doesn't say they were brilliant, though they probably had it together mentally. It doesn't say they had a high uh, level of um, acumen. The one thing that set them apart is they were loyal. They were faithful to the Lord and faithful and loyal to the ministry. And then it says, and this is how he ends all of these little segments. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its services. Now we're going to just deal with that for a few minutes before we move on to the second misplaced priority. Here's the first. The secular had become more important than the spiritual. Let me explain. Years before Nehemiah came, another leader came to build the temple. What was his name? It's when all the Jews came back from 70 years of captivity. Begins with an E, Ezra. So Ezra came back and he rebuilt that temple. That was his focus, the temple. Let's establish the place of worship. They did it. When Nehemiah came back, his emphasis wasn't the temple. That was already done. His emphasis was the city. 
And so what had happened over time is just as he came back to build the city, and he built the city, by the way, to protect the temple so that the worship could go on unhindered, unrestricted, protected from enemy invasion. The gates were burned down with fire. The walls were torn down. But the focus of Nehemiah wasn't the temple. It was the city. Well, now that the city's built up, the emphasis of the people, hey, life's pretty good now. We have infrastructure. We have businesses. We have a real city up and running. Their focus turned from the spiritual now to the city, to the secular, not the spiritual any longer. That was their focus. It was a misplaced priority. Now, it's not Nehemiah's fault. Just because he built the city, he built it for the right reason. He built it to add a protective measure to the temple sacrifices. And we know that the people, once reading the Bible in Chapter 8 and 9, repented and dressed in sackcloth and made a covenant. So there was a spiritual revival going on with Nehemiah's presence. But what happened is entropy. Remember, young men, it's the nature of fire to go out. The fire had gone out. The city's built. And now the focus is off the temple and really onto the city. Forget the priesthood. Forget taking care of those guys. We have a city to watch out for. It was a misplaced priority. Now, this explains making the Levites go back in the fields and work. This explains why there's a room. Remember back in verse 4 and 5? That the priests could lend to Tobiah, the enemy of the Lord. Look back at verse 4 for just a moment. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of our God, was allied with Tobiah. Remember, he was one of the enemies who tried to stop the wall of Jerusalem from being built. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes. Of the grain, the new wine, the oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. So they lost their focus. The room is emptied. An enemy is living inside of it. The priests, instead of being taken care of by the tithes of the people, they got to go back to work out in the fields. It's the nature of fire to go out. Any person any group, any church, any Christian organization can lose its focus over time. And it's important to reevaluate that focus. How are we doing spiritually? Is the, is the most important thing still the most important thing? I left a church in Albuquerque that I'd been at for almost 23 years. And I'm constantly checking, how are things going? Is it on track? They've kept me on the board as chairman of the board for five years. Let's just monitor this over time and see how this thing goes. Or the radio ministry, we have the Connection Radio Ministry trying to change that from one state to move it back out to this state. Let's evaluate how the impact of that is going. Let's evaluate if the spiritual ministry is keeping its focus. It's always important to evaluate A couple years back, we had a meeting at the Cove. That's the Billy Graham Training Center in Asheville, North Carolina. It was just a group of people, those who speak there every year, 
And we were discussing the future of the Cove. How are these conferences going to go? What is our emphasis going to be as a training center? And uh, Franklin was there. His sister, uh, Anne, was there. Howard Hendricks, myself, and a few others who speak there regularly. And Howard Hendricks said this to us. It was really fascinating. He said, if we decide to make the Cove always a training center with expository Bible teaching, we will be the most unique Christian conference center in America. Because all of them, he said, have turned from that. So if we make that our focus, we'll be very unique. And so we decided that's our focus. That's where we want to stay. That's how it began. There's a restaurant down in Atlanta, Georgia. Maybe some of you have eaten at it when you've been down there visiting. It's called the Church of God Grill. Isn't that an interesting name for a restaurant? The Church of God Grill. You know how it started? As a church. (laughs) It was a church. It was a mission downtown. And after church services, they would sell chicken dinners to pay the bills for this mission. And the meals were great. People loved the meals. So they kept it going. And since so many people loved the meals, they made the meals the focus and less on the spiritual service of the church. So that as that waned, they closed down the church, but they kept the chicken and added other things to the menu and kept the name. Now it's the Church of God Grill. Put that in perspective. There was an outfit who once specialized in giving spiritual food to those downtown Atlanta. Now all they're selling is chicken dinners. Just food. It's important to keep the focus. Nehemiah left for just a period of time. The focus has changed. Now, this is a pattern, by the way. You know, Moses was up on the mountain and he came down. And as soon as he came down, he noticed that all the people were, Exodus 32, fallen into idolatry. He'd gone just a little bit of time and they were already worshiping idols. And what was the pattern of Paul the Apostle in the New Testament? Every time he established a church, do do you recall the pattern of what happened? Now, hold that thought. Because how often do you people say, we want to be a New Testament church? Well, you could bicker and fight and fall into apostasy and you'd be a New Testament church as well as like one in the book of Acts. So that's a general statement. Because the New Testament churches that Paul started, he started them right, but then he would leave and he'd go somewhere else. And he'd check back with them and find out that they had fallen from that place that he left them. So he would have to do what? write a letter of correction, send a leader, or visit himself. So that was a pattern, so much so that just 30 years after Paul established the church of Ephesus, where he spent the longest part of his time, three and a half years he spent in Ephesus. By the time he left, as time went on, Jesus had to write a letter to that church correcting it. You have left your first love, he said. See, Booth was right. It's always the nature of a fire to go out. You got to tend it. You got to keep evaluating it. Nehemiah comes back and finds the misplaced priority, secular over spiritual. When I came to this church 
and I met with the elder board. They said something interesting to me. They said, our church is at a low spiritual state. That didn't mean that everybody was carnal or everybody wasn't, was at a low level. There were some very mature believers. But they said, we want to change. We want Bible study. And we're ready to do what it takes. I said, okay, I'm up for the challenge. I'm up for an adventure. I didn't quite know what kind of an adventure I'd be on. But I discovered that Peter was right. The time has come, said Peter, for judgment to begin at the house of God. And they said, our church is at a low spiritual state. I didn't quite know exactly what that meant, but as time went on, I found out. One incident was when they somebody wrote profanity all over my driveway because a staff member was let go. And they also wrote how much they loved that staff member, but I couldn't even give you the letters of that profanity. So I looked at the driveway and I said, you know, those elders were right. Those elders were right. I get their point. I see where they're coming from. If that's the kind of people that that leadership produces, they're right. And it's time for judgment to begin at the house of God. Nehemiah is contending with them. Um, another little example. I wanted to start a Wednesday night Bible study. Here we are. When I suggested, we're going to start a Sunday night Bible study. Oh, now wait a minute. We haven't done that kind of a Wednesday night Bible study for some time. Now we've got something else going on. We don't want to mess that up. You know, Harry Ironside was a preacher in the Los Angeles area for a while. He used to travel around the country a lot. He'd see a lot of different churches, as I have, but he was much older when he wrote this. He said he was in one town, and he saw a sign over the church that said, Jesus only, and he thought, bingo, right on. That's a cool church. And then as he stayed in that town a while, he discovered the truth about that church that they were bickering and self-centered. And uh, one day a windstorm came through town and knocked the first three letters off. And after knowing about the church and seeing the sign the second time, he said, now that fits. Well, in Jerusalem, that would fit. The secular had taken priority over the spiritual. It was us only. Now, a little side note. There was another prophet in Jerusalem at this time. His name was Malachi. And Malachi, if you know much about his book, it's the last in your Old Testament, but it was contemporaneous to the ministry of Nehemiah. While Nehemiah is back in Persia for a period of time before he gets back, Malachi is running around the streets of Jerusalem telling them to focus on the house of God. Don't neglect the house of God. And he says, thus says the Lord, you have robbed me, says the Lord. Wherein have we robbed you, the people asked? In tithes and in offerings, says the Lord. Well, they must not have listened to Malachi because by the time Nehemiah gets back after Malachi has given the prophecy, he finds this condition. So he isolates the leadership, says, we've got to fix this problem. This isn't right. And he contended with them. 
Let's move on to the second misplaced priority. It's profit being more important than purpose. Verse 15. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. They're breaking the fourth commandment, aren't they? Keep the Sabbath holy. Don't mess with that day, God said. Men of Tyre dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. These are probably Tyrian fishermen who came with their salted, dried fish. That's how they would sell it in those days. And they set up their wares in the city of Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah. There's that word again. And I said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Now, maybe they're getting a little edgy at Nehemiah. Nehemiah, if you had like a, a, a bad trip from Persia, I mean, it's great to see and all, but you're really mad, aren't you? Because everything he's doing is contentious. Well, it's going to get worse. Just notice these words as they come up. Did not your fathers do thus? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem, as it began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut and charged that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Okay, he comes to Jerusalem. He sees that they have their misplaced priorities. He sees they're working on the Sabbath. To them, it's all about the profit, not the purpose for which they exist as a nation. And he he says, basically, are you guys nuts? Don't you remember our recent history? Don't you remember that we spent 70 years in Babylon because... We broke the Sabbath. Don't you remember the prophecy of Jeremiah who shouted from the area of the temple, this city, and told our forebears we're breaking the Sabbath and God would bring us into captivity. And don't you remember, maybe he referred to some of the other books like Second Chronicles 36, where God says, because you have broken not only the Sabbath day, remember there was the Sabbath day, six days you work, one day you let the land lay fallow. But because you broke the Sabbath year, I'm going to take you into captivity for 70 years. Okay, this is how it should have registered. Every six years, at the end of six years, the seventh year, you do nothing. You let the ground lay fallow. That's the sabbatic year. That means you get a year off every six years. Wouldn't we love that? So you work six days a week. You're off the seventh. You work six years of that. You're off the whole year. Well, they failed to keep the sabbatic year. They kept working the land, working the land, working the land after the profit, the money, the profit, the money for 490 years. They owed God 70 years of rest for the land. That's why God took him into Babylon for how many years? 70 years to give the land a 70 year rest. You owe me 70. I'm going to take it out of your hide. Get out of here. Let the land lay fallow. 
So Nehemiah is coming back, seeing what they're doing, the same sense. Are you guys nuts? This is what brought us into captivity in the first place. They were more interested in profit rather than purpose. Then I warned them. Uh, back Verse 20. Now the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. Then I warned them. These are the guys outside the walls. Can you picture Nehemiah standing on the walls of the city? Get out of here. He didn't even want him around. I like this guy. And he said to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. You know, in the Bible, there's two kinds of laying out of hands. There's the good kind and the bad kind. This isn't the good kind. He's not going to like pray for them and anoint them for service. He's going to deal harshly with them. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. So he's rebuking leadership. He's rebuking the people who are after the prophet rather than after the purpose that they exist as a nation. Again, it's the nature of fire to go out. You got to keep it tended. You got to feed the fire. You got to remove the ashes. That's spiritual entropy. It's happening in these areas. Jim Dobson used to speak of, and he wrote books on child rearing, and he divided children up in a couple of different categories, the compliant child, the defiant child. Every parent knows what this is if they have several kids. They go, oh, yeah, there's child number one, easy, breezy, no problem. Child number two, a little more difficult. I mean, right from the start, we saw the difference. And every family has a defiant as well as a compliant child, except the family I grew up in, four boys. We were all defiant. (laughs) Well, in, in the church, there are also spiritual children that are like defiant children. They're like Christians with an attitude. And they're in the church. We have to deal with them. We have to mature them. They're part of the commitment that we share together. The Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. 1 Thessalonians 5:14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, and uphold the weak. Well, Nehemiah recognizes coming back to Jerusalem that his kids, some of them had become very defiant. He's going to deal with them. And he does. He shouts at them. He rebukes them, in other words. Stern language, hard leadership. I'm fascinated that the book closes this way, frankly. Because if I were writing a historical novel about Nehemiah, I would want to close with chapter 12. The end, and they lived happily ever after. But this is the truth. This is what happened to the city he built. And he comes back and he finds this. And he warns the people. And I don't think they were idle threats. You know, my parents would warn me. They would be very good about when I was out of line. We have four boys, so the warnings were very stern to us boys. I had a a very um, 
firm-handed dad. And a firm-handed mother. You know, she's only five foot. And I'm six foot five. My brother was six foot eight. So that little gal had to be firm-handed. And she was. And here's the thing that I remember about my mom and dad. They never threatened. But they always promised. None of this raising the voice and then raising the voice a little more and then four or five times, I told you, if you don't stop, I'll do this. Well, then do it, right? They never did that. They just promised, if you do it again, you're toast. That's all it was. And, and it wasn't anything else after that. If we did it again, we were toast. No threats, always a promise. And so is Nehemiah. He warned them. He said, they were out there once or twice. They knew better. They knew the guy's history. Verse 22, and I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Here's this prayer again. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your mercy. The Sabbath day was no small issue. The Sabbath day was to be a perpetual covenant the Jews had with their God to commemorate God's resting after creation. Remember, God created the heavens and the earth for six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And he didn't rest because he was tired and needed to sleep. He rested because he was done. It was finished. So God said to show a special relationship that you as my people and I as your God have, you'll work for six days. And then you rest on the seventh. That's God's pattern. Six and one. It's a good pattern. Do nothing from uh, sundown Friday evening all the way to sundown Saturday. Sabbath began at night. By the way, Jewish reckoning isn't day and night. It's always night and day. He says that in the beginning of creation. And evening and morning were the first day. So they always reckon it from the night onward. When the stars appear in the sky, it begins. When the stars appear the next night, it's over. And it spoke of that special covenant that they had. Now, back in the wilderness, they're out there wandering. And they're trying to figure out, what are we going to live on? You know, there's just dirt out here. They got up one morning and they looked on the ground. And it looked like snow. This is weird. We're in the Sinai Desert and there's white stuff all over. And they asked, what is it? And the name stuck because manna basically means, what is it? So pick up the, what is it? And bring it in and we'll eat it. And that's all they ate. And there was all sorts of ways to cook it. They'd have manna souffle and manna omelets and manna cotti and all sorts of <laughs> manna dishes to keep them going for years. Now here was the deal, God said. You can only pick one day's worth up off the ground, enough to sustain you for 24 hours. If you try to pick up two days worth, it would go rotten. It'd have bugs. It would stink up the house. So they had to go every single day and pick it up except on the Sabbath. It was the only day they were told to pick up two days worth and it wouldn't stink. It would be provided all through that short weekend. Because it's a holy day. You're to keep it in commemoration. Nehemiah gets back to Jerusalem. Hey, why have Saturday off? Good day for business. In fact, probably now that the city is built and some of the Jews see that these guys are home ridden all weekend long, 
and nobody's selling anything, maybe I'll be the first. There's a little market niche here. I could start selling and doing business on the Sabbath. Nobody else is. And it caught on. Now everybody was doing it. They were more interested in the prophet. You know what it's sort of like? There was a time in our country that businesses were closed on Sunday. Just because this is a Judeo-Christian country. It was started as one nation under God. So Sunday is off. Businesses shut down. I was at a place a little over a year ago. They invited me for years to come. I finally said I'd do it, and I'm glad I did. It was in Ocean City, New Jersey. And it was started as a Christian vacation island and a Christian retreat center. And it was at the Ocean City Tabernacle. And basically, everything is shut down on Sunday to this day. You want to get anything, you better do it Saturday because Sunday is a day of worshiping the Lord. You cannot buy liquor in that entire city. It's not ever sold, ever. If you want to go get drunk and you live there, you have to go outside the city and get it. But if you bring it in, you get in trouble. So there was a time when the whole country was sort of like that. And then people figured out, hey, I can work on Sunday. I can get a little more profit. We have a guy on staff, he has a friend in the area, and he keeps inviting him to church, and he says, yeah, you know, church, yeah, 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 church is good, and yeah, I love God, I'm a believer, but you know, Sunday's a big work day. And my friend said to him, I think Jesus said something about, seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these other things would be added to you. I bet if you would just take Jesus up on that, he'd bless your life. Well, this is what's happening here in Jerusalem. It takes us to the problem. Our problem is similar. We so often fail to see the value because we're all about the cost, the profit. Instead of the value of life lived under the control of God and focusing on God. Yeah, but we're making money. But but what's the state of your soul? Remember back to the wilderness, God gave them quail to eat and they begged for meat because they didn't have the meat in Egypt and the Bible says God sent them what they wanted but leanness to their souls their flesh was fat and well fed but their souls were crying out for more they weren't satisfied anymore that's what's happening here now I know we live in a busy culture and I know what it costs to live here and you got to work hard and you got to do what it takes But I also believe that God is faithful. And I believe if we just believe what he said and obey what he says in this area, we're going to be surprised at how God is waiting to bless. And I also believe that if you're too busy for God, you're just too busy. And it's worth pulling everything else out so that our focus can be this focus. Let's look at a third. Liberty was more important than legacy. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So I, what? Contented. This is a contentious dude. Contentious. 
with them and cursed them, struck some of them and pulled out their hair. How would you like to have that guy as your pastor? And made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now, would you just let me read that to you in the Living Bible? It's very flavorful. I argued with these parents, and I cursed them, and I punched a few of them, and I knocked them around, and I pulled out their hair. Okay then, this is the leader. What was this guy so bummed out about? Their marriages. Jewish men were intermarrying with women of Ammon and Moab. That's east of the Dead Sea. Ashdod was in the western portion. It was one of the five cities of the Philistines. Remember the Philistines years before had their five cities, um, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Gaza, and Ekron. That's it. They settled there. These were some of the leftovers of these places, the Philistine country. And there was an intermarriage between Jewish men and these gals. Now, it got so serious that some of their kids didn't speak Hebrew. So, so what? It's a big so what. How are they ever going to learn the Bible, which is all in Hebrew? How are they ever going to learn classes, which are always taught in Hebrew, in the synagogue and at home? They were losing the very language that they spoke. By the way, remember, a child is more apt to learn how to speak from mom rather than dad, because mom's at home with them, especially in those days where it was three years of weaning a child. And that child's going to learn how to speak from mom, not from dad. Dad's out, you know, selling camels at the used Camelot or Camelot. I got a new joke. I'll work on that one. So juniors at home with mom learning the language of Moab and Ammon and Ashdod and not of the Hebrews, so they won't learn the Bible at home. They won't learn it at the synagogue because they don't speak the language. That was serious to Nehemiah. If this generation is lost to the Hebrew nation, what about the future of our nation? You know, you can always tell by language where a person's from. You listen to them long enough, you'll discover by accent or by usage where their place of origin is. You can tell a Christian by, he speaks the language of Zion. You can tell worldly people, listen to their language. Oh, they might put on the few words about God and the good Lord. And a few little things, but you listen to them, you go, yeah, they're not really walking with the Lord. It says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, They are of the world, therefore they speak as of the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. I got a question. Why would these Jewish men marry these gals from Moab, Ashkelon, and Ashdod? Why? I can think of a lot of reasons. They're cute. 
He's handsome. He's so funny. I don't find anybody that cute and that funny and that cool among the Hebrews. So this Jewish guy would marry that pagan gal because, oh, she's gorgeous. I haven't seen anybody that beautiful over in Jerusalem. Whatever the scenario might be, it was enough to make them compromise. And I've heard people say, well, yeah, I'm dating an unbeliever. By the way, a survey of Christian teenagers in our churches in America, 40% of our teenagers in churches in America said when they were asked, would you date an unbeliever? 40% immediately said, sure. 25% said, probably. Only the rest said no. So this activity led to this marriage. There's a principle, and you probably knew I was going to bring it up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, do not be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever. He uses a term, yoked together. It's a farming term. I know it sort of sounds goofy for relationships, but it paints a strong picture. A wise farmer, when plowing a field, wants to take two equally matched animals, same size, same temperament, same species, so that they don't pull in opposite directions, but they pull in the same direction to get the job done. So the principle holds in a relationship of marriage. If you want to go that way, Christian, to serve the Lord, do you think an unbeliever wants to serve the Lord in that direction? No, the idea is that you could be pulled in opposite directions. And that's why one translation of 2 Corinthians 6 puts it this way. Stop forming intimate and inconsistent relationships with unbelievers. could be a big tug of war. Oh, but she's so cute. But what do you have in common? Well, we both like jazz. Okay, but in the present state, is she going to heaven or hell right now? Well, okay, if you get that way, she's going to hell. Is that where you're going? No, I'm going to heaven. But I could marry her and drag her into heaven with me. It's called missionary dating. (laughs) Happens all the time. It's the rationale. Oh, I could do this. Uh, Usually what happens is the believer gets torn down and taken down by the unbeliever than vice versa. Now, you don't have to take my word for it, although I have seen it and I have warned hundreds of people over time and watched it time and time again. Look what he says in verse 26. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him great over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. Okay, pause. Think back. Remember Sanballat, the Horonite? 
Sanballat and Tobiah were the two guys that opposed Nehemiah more than anybody else in the book. Sanballat was the big mouth governor of Samaria who said when Nehemiah came to build the city, you're not going to build the city. I'm going to do everything I can to pull your walls down. I'm going to write letters I'm to the king. I'm going to stop this thing. And then when he couldn't stop it, he threatened him again. Then he tried to move into Jerusalem and kill people. Now he's married into a high priest family. His daughter married one of the high priest's sons. Talk about this is classic Satan. If you can't beat him, join him. So Nehemiah, again, look at the language. Therefore, I drove him from me. Now, before you are tempted to go, well, that's so unloving. Jesus would never do that. You need to understand two things. Number one, this is a treasonable relationship to bring a sworn enemy who has tried to destroy you into the corrupt, corrupting a high priest family. So that family's cut off from Israel. And number two, you may want to read the New Testament again and look at Jesus walking in the temple with whips, beating people out of the temple because they had profaned God's house. Same God. That's love. That's love. You know, please forgive me. I don't like to mix Spockian theology with the Bible, but Spock did say a very profound thing in one of the Star Wars episodes. (laughs) Spock said, and I quote, The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. If I were to couch that through the lens of the Bible, I would say the whole body of Christ must be loved, not just the individual rights of a person at the moment. What's best for the body? This is best for the body. Get this guy out of here. Remove him. Remember them, oh my God. Now he has said in the other previous prayers, remember me, oh my God. Remember them, oh my God. Because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Oh, can I give you a factoid? If you're into this kind of trivial stuff, you might like it. There's a guy, a Jewish guy named Josephus. He was a historian. Flavius Josephus was hired by the Romans to record Jewish history. He wrote a little bit about Jesus and all throughout the annals of Jewish history. According to Josephus, this young man who married Sanballat's daughter was named Manasseh. And when Nehemiah kicked him out, he took a Pentateuch Torah scroll, copy of the first five books of Moses, and he left and went back to Samaria to his father-in-law's house. And it was because of this that he started a rival religion. He built a temple on Mount Gerizim, And they had their own worship. And the Samaritans, by the time of Jesus, were worshiping on that mountain from this episode. And they only read the first five books of Moses. They don't read the whole... There's 200 left today still in Samaria. They're kind of like idiots. I mean, honestly, they intermarry and, you know, they got two last names for the whole company of them. But they built this rival temple. 
So that the woman said, our fathers say in this mountain we ought to worship. But you Jews say Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said, Women, woman, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. So that episode occurred, according to Josephus, after Nehemiah kicked this guy and his wife out. Verse 30, thus I have cleansed them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to his service, and to bringing the wood offering and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. When the secular takes priority over the spiritual, when profit is more important than purpose, when liberty is more important than legacy, I can marry whoever I feel I should marry. It's my liberty. And you're not thinking of the legacy of the church and the body of Christ. You're at a low spiritual state. Those are areas of compromise. So they made a covenant together. We talked about doing that several weeks ago. We're done with the book of Nehemiah, but we're just beginning to march forward as a church in this community. What are our priorities? The centrality of the word of God. When we get together, we're going to be opening this book. It's not going to change. You might as well buy a Bible. (laughs) And bring it. And open it. You know what the best sound to a pastor is? Is when he says, open your Bible and there's... (laughs) Ah, yeah. That's like surf on the ocean to a surfer. It's like, yes. So the priority is always going to be the Bible. So buy a Bible and read it because that's what we're going to be doing. That's not going to change. If I ever leave here, that might change. I'm not responsible after that. But until then, we're going to be reading the Bible. And then let's aim at excellence, not mediocrity. Not, oh, that's good enough. This is for the Lord. We want to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, soul, and strength. In everything, in every area, let's aim for excellence. A visitor went to the home of Gary Player, the golfer, and right on his wall in his foyer had an interesting plaque. It said, God hates mediocrity. Now, judging from his creation, I would tend to agree. Let's aim at excellence. Let's make sure the Bible teaching is excellent, doctrinally pure, excellent in delivery. Let's train men and women to be teachers of the word. Let's train pastors to go pastor hundreds of churches around our country. Why not? Let's develop the arts so that people from America will come here to learn how to worship how to engage in the devotional arts. Let's produce them. Let's have our own recording studio. We're working on it. And let these people hone their craft and get their work out. Let's have the best Sunday school department. The best. No mediocrity. Because remember, it's the nature of a fire to go out. And if you just let it go, it will go out you tend it you feed it 
You take out the ashes. We'll do it together. Heavenly Father, we're yours. We submit and surrender ourselves to you. Not as a bunch of dead animals, but as living sacrifices. I pray that excellence would drive us. I sort of see that behind the actions of Nehemiah, though some have misunderstood him. His motives were solely that. This is God's city. This is God's temple. We're God's people. And we should never settle into anything less than the knowledge of that. So, Lord, as we build together, help us to build into one another's lives. I pray, Lord, that you'd raise up the best counselors in this county. I pray you'd raise up the best worshipers, musicians, artists in this community. The best kind of teaching, adult education, pastoral education, and children's education. Lord, we look forward to see that unfold. We want to be committed to it. And I pray, Lord, that each one of us would so desire to love you with all of our mind, all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, for that is the first and greatest commandment. And so now bless, Lord, pour out your spirit. Because even the very best and the most excellent we could give is so fractional and tiny compared to what you have to add to it to make it really good. Because you have chosen the foolish things of this world and the weak things. So we'll give you the glory and the honor because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.